Let us turn now in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, we will begin reading at verse 15 through verse 20. As you turn there, I hope you will not mind my mentioning that uh, my wife Vicki and I had some... Um, we hope wonderfully fruitful but very exhausting days in Grand Rapids uh, this past week where we were privileged to fellowship with the faculty members at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, the students, the incoming students there and others, and to spend time with those who are behind Reformation Heritage books. And I had the privilege of ministering at the First Netherlands Reformed Church and also the Harvest Orthodox Presbyterian Church while we were there. So a lot happened in a very short period of time, but uh, I hope that the ministry of this church was extended. This morning, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Next week, Lord willing, we will return to Daniel. Will you pray with me? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask in the name of the only mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his precious blood to redeem us from our sins, that the Holy Spirit of God would take this portion of Scripture and that the page would be illumined, our minds illumined by the work of the Holy Spirit, and that we, the people of God, would be deepened in our understanding of the truth, deepened in our faith, and living out experientially the realities of this text. But we also pray, O oh Lord, that those who may be in our midst this morning, who are lost and undone, and who are not captivated within their hearts by faith of this Jesus Christ who is proclaimed in this text, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts. We pray for the renewal of their wills, we pray for the grace of faith and repentance to be granted to them so that they may embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And Father, all the glory, all the glory from first to last goes to thy name. Hear our prayer, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you will now take your copy of God's Word and stand, we will begin reading at verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. This is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. A 
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we have read leads us to the dizzying heights. We are captivated by Christ as he is revealed in this passage as the one who is pre-existent, the one who is preeminent. And as we study this passage together, we are led away from our self-focus and preoccupation with those things that are petty. Paul in the book of Colossians is concerned that this church planted by Epaphras is in danger of being carried away by false teaching. He says, for example, in the eighth verse of the second chapter, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The heresy that was found in this church at Colossae was eclectic, comprised of an exclusive spirit, a spiritual caste system, speculative views on creation, a denial of Christ's deity, a denial of Christ's humanity, and of course with serious ethical implications for the church. The church seems to be standing fast, but there are elements that are apostates and he wants to be sure that the church does not follow in their apostasy. And oh, people of God, the church is still in danger when it strays from the word of God. Let our minds and hearts and souls be tethered to the word of the Lord. The heretics thought that Christ was not enough, that Christ was insufficient. And the hallmark of all heresy and certainly of every cult is a compromised view of Christ that denies who he is, denies what he has done, and denies his complete sufficiency to save sinners. And as we come to the table this morning, we come in faith to a sufficient Savior, an altogether lovely Lord who is capable of redeeming sinners like us from our sins. And so nothing is more important than this. Nothing is more important than the questions, who is Christ? What did he come to do? Uh, why was he able to accomplish what he did? Why is he the all-sufficient Savior? And do I know for myself, savingly, this all-sufficient Savior? Well, those questions, but the last, are, at, are answered for us in verses 15 through 20. And so we begin with this. This is first. The text teaches us that Christ is God the creator and the sustainer of creation. Verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now let's look at that and unpack those verses. He is the image of the invisible God. The word here, icon. There's no definite article in the Greek with this word expressing his quality. One grammarian has said, in Greek thought, an image shares in reality what it represents. Christ is the perfect likeness of God, 
the word contains the idea of representation and manifestation. The word points to his revealing the Father and his pre-existence. You see, God can only be fully and completely pictured by God himself. Creation cannot fully and completely reveal the inner nature and being of God. It reveals God to us, but the point being, only Christ, the perfect likeness of God, because he shares the essence of the Father, can fully reveal the Father to us. This is New Testament Trinitarian theology. He is the image, we are told, of the invisible God. God in his essence cannot be seen. We are told in 1 Timothy 6 that he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see. But when the Son of God becomes incarnate, then you see God himself. He who has seen me has seen the Father, the Lord Jesus said. A.T. Robertson makes the statement, Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father as he was before the incarnation and is now. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. One old commentator said, visibility is implied in the very notion of image. Well, that's true. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And in his incarnation, he revealed the heart of the Father, and he could be touched, and he could be seen, and he could be heard. There he was, healing the sick, removing leprosy, calming the sea, weeping over Jerusalem. This was the son of his love, the very image of the Father, revealing the heart of the Father to the people of God. In verse 15, we also read the firstborn over all creation. Again, no article expressing quality. The term firstborn does not mean that Christ was created. It has nothing to do with origin, with having a beginning. It means that he was preexistent. It speaks of his uniqueness, the one who holds sway over creation. And so the two words actually that should stand out as you read verse 15 and other verses here as well is priority and sovereignty. Priority and sovereignty. Firstborn references his priority and his sovereignty over all creation. The idea is to point back to the rights and privileges of the firstborn, not the beginning of the firstborn. The firstborn was the father's representative. The firstborn acted in his father's name. The father is invisible, but as someone has said, the universe is not left without a palpable God because the invisible God became man and dwelt among us. He assumed human nature. God became man without ceasing to be who he had always been. He became what he had not been. And so priority and sovereignty over every created thing. Since he holds priority and sovereignty over every created thing, should it not be that within our hearts we put no thing above Jesus Christ? That we submit our hearts, our minds, our lives to the one who holds sway, the one who holds priority and sovereignty? 
But then when we come to verse 16, we are given a bold faith statement that Christ is the creator. He is the one through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, you see all things in verse 16, all things in verse 17, and all things again underscored in verse 18. He is the creator of thrones, the highest of angelic beings, of dominions, of authorities, of all spiritual hierarchies. Matter did not create itself, neither did angelic spirits create themselves. And since he is before all things, he cannot be a creature. John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. As the old commentator Ellicott put it, Christ is the creative center of all things, the causal element of their existence. Do you know the old hymn, creator of the stars of night? Creator of the stars of night, thy people's everlasting light. O Christ, thou savior of us all, we pray thee, hear us when we call. He is the creator of the stars of night. He is the creator of all things. And note that it is through him, but also it is for him. All things are to serve his glory. It is for him that all things were created. The end of the existence of all created things is the glory of the Son of God. But again, I ask, is that your attitude and mine? If all things are made by and for him, it is needful that we honor the Creator and seek to manifest his glory. And so the question is, are you? Are you seeking to manifest his glory? Is that the motivation of your heart? Where are you not seeking to manifest the glory of the one to whom all glory belongs? For him, all things were created. But not only is he the creator of all things, but he is the sustainer of the things that are created. And so we read in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, that is his pre-existence, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father. In him all things cohere, all things hold together. J.B. Lightfoot says, he impresses upon creation the unity and solidarity which makes it a cosmos instead of a chaos. And so why do the atoms cohere? Why do the galaxies function? This is the God, Jesus Christ is the God who not only created, but also sustains that which has been created. And I want you to see, people of God, how far down he condescended, how far, how infinitely far down he stooped in order to save you and me from our hell-deserving sins. This creator God, this sustainer of all things, is the God who became incarnate. 
the God who took upon himself flesh, the God who obeyed the law that we broke, who sacrificed himself on a cross to pay for our awful sins. Do you see his dignity? Again, an old author. His arm upholds the universe, and if it were withdrawn, all things would fade into their original non-existence. His great empire depends upon him in all its provinces. Life, mind, sensation, and matter, atoms beneath us to which geology has not descended, and stars beyond us to which astronomy has never penetrated. He feeds the sun with fuel and veils the moon in beauty. So that this Jehovah God of whom we read in our scripture reading this morning from the 40th of Isaiah, the one who sits upon the circumference of the world, the one of whom it is asked, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, the one before whom the nations are as but a drop in the bucket as dust upon the scales. This is the God who so loved you that he became man in order to redeem you from your sins. You see, we cannot maintain our own existence. There must be his conserving power, and that is humbling, is it not? It is an humbling thought indeed. We do not create ourselves. We do not belong to ourselves. We do not sustain ourselves. And what encouragement this is for the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, it should be profoundly disturbing for the unbeliever. Even in your opposition to Christ, you are upheld by the very Christ that you oppose. And he will maintain you in hell if you die in your unbelief. Every atom of your being and your rebellious soul will scream that Christ is Lord. But believers will forever be amazed that we are upheld in that by the grace of God. As we think of these two verses, I want to read you, I've read to you before, but want to read to you again, J.B. Lightfoot's paraphrase of these verses. And children and young people, I was 13 years old when I was first captivated by J.B. Lightfoot's paraphrase of this passage. I want also for your hearts to be captivated by this paraphrase. In verses 15 to 17, he says, He is the perfect image, the invisible representation of the unseen God. He is the firstborn, the absolute heir of the Father, begotten before the ages, the Lord of the universe by virtue of primogenitor and by virtue also of creative agency. For in and through him the whole world was created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible to the outward eye and things cognizable by the inward perception. His supremacy is absolute and universal. All powers in heaven and earth are subject to him. This subjection extends even to the most exalted and most potent of angelic beings, whether they be called thrones or dominations or princedoms or powers or whatever title of dignity men may confer upon them. Yes, he is first and he is last. Through him, as the mediatorial word, the universe has been created, and unto him as the final goal it is tending. 
In him is no before or after. He is pre-existent and self-existent before all the worlds. And in him, as the binding and sustaining power, universal nature coheres and consists. People of God, this is your Redeemer. Behold your God. This is the God who became man to save and redeem you from your sins. Can we hear these things and receive them as commonplace? Can we hear these things and not be moved to the depths of our souls to think that I, an undeserving, indeed hell-deserving sinner with no merit, was so loved by God, this great creator and sustainer, that he came into this world and shed his blood to redeem me from my awful sins. Paul is thinking that way as well. And the second thing that we see in the passage is Christ is the head of the body, the church. And we read in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Creator of creation, he also is the creator and the sustainer of new creation. He is the head. Head means sovereign. He is the beginning, the source of life, the firstborn from the dead. Again, Lightfoot says his resurrection from the dead is his title to the headship of the church. And that is right. Jesus passed through death. He died but he did not remain in the grave. He passed through death. So that every year we may sing in December or any time, good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. And just as the Father did nothing in creation without Christ, he does nothing in the new creation without Christ who became incarnate. The foundation of the church is the person of Christ. The foundation of your lives is the person of Christ. That in everything he might be preeminent. What does Paul mean? That he might be known to have the preeminence over creation, that he might be preeminent over the church as our head and king, that he might be preeminent over death, that he might be preeminent over life, in person, in all things. He is preeminent. And one day, everyone will acknowledge the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, by faith, bend the knee now. But this Christ who is creator, who is sustainer, who is head of the body, the church, he is thirdly, we see thirdly, the reconciler. Christ is the reconciler. Verses 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. The incarnate Lord, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. His person is stressed. The pleroma, the plenitude, the fullness was pleased to dwell and to do so permanently. We read in verse 9 of the second chapter, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Apostle Paul uses the heretic's very word against them, this word pleroma. The attributes of God belong to him because he is God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. John 1.18, no one has seen God but the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. As someone has said, he is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers and attributes. There could not be a fuller, more definitive affirmation of the full deity of Jesus Christ than we have in this passage. And that is why, according to verse 20, he is also the reconciler. And through him, this one who is creator, who is sustainer, this one who is the firstborn from the dead, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the reconciler. His work is stressed. He is the restorer of this fallen world. He is the one who brings harmony between heaven and earth that had been severed by sin. Through his cross, through the blood of his cross, through the precious shed blood of this sovereign God become man, through the blood of his cross we are reconciled. The baby born of the virgin in Bethlehem, who was he? God in the flesh, who made peace through his own shed blood. From sin and death, he saves us. Well, we will hopefully, perhaps next communion service, unpack more of what verses 19 and 20 mean. But for now, as we focus upon these verses, the words of Davenant came to mind. We may rely fearlessly on this Redeemer and the preciousness of his blood who is a person of such infinite power and majesty that he did create all things and still upholds all things which would otherwise relapse into nothing. This creator, sustainer that became man who shed his blood upon this true and living incarnate Lord, this now resurrected, ascended, regnant Jesus Christ, upon him you may rely fearlessly for your redemption from sin. Now I want us to draw forthly some implications of this text in this communion sermon this morning. Some applications, some implications. Does not this portrait of Christ take your breath away? Should it not 
captivate our minds and our hearts? Behold your God. The implication and applications should be extensive, but let me draw out just a few. Because of what we read in these few verses this morning, you, people of God, each of you should be an adoring theologian. An adoring theologian. These things that stagger the mind. They should lead you, all of you, to be adoring theologians, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise, and contemplation, and meditation. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Do you meditate upon these things, upon these truths? Or is your mind, is your heart just filled constantly with those things that are petty, those things that do not matter for eternity? John Owen made this statement. He says essentially that the more sublime and glorious are the things we believe and dwell upon, the more we are changed into the image of God as we exercise faith upon those things. Listen to that again. My paraphrase of Owen. The more sublime and glorious are the things we believe and dwell upon, the more we are changed into the image of God as we exercise faith upon those things. The more sublime and glorious are the things we believe and dwell upon, there is nothing more sublime, there is nothing grander or greater than what we have read in this passage this morning. If you husband and wife, dwelt upon this Christ, your marriage would be different. If you, young person, dwelt upon this Christ, your relationships would be different. If you, lost person, for the first time ever by faith, could catch a vision of this exalted Lord, your entire life would be different for eternity. This is certainly true, that the more Sublime and glorious are the things we believe and dwell upon. The more our lives are conformed to the image of this Christ upon whom we dwell, have you learned this truth? But then also, another implication. I simply want us to reflect again for a few moments on the infinite, infinite condescension that he came down and down and down and down and down, infinitely down, the true greatness and comfort of the incarnation is found here. Why did he assume our flesh? Calvin marvelously says he took our poverty to give us riches, our mortality to give us immortality. He descended to elevate us to heaven. And people of God, here is our comfort and what comfort it is that God appears to us not in consuming majesty, but he comes to us with all-consuming love in his full deity and humanity in his incarnation. And he is close. He is very close. And he still is. Even in his exaltation, the dust of earth sits upon the throne of heaven, and there he is your intercessor. But a third implication is this. This text presents before us the great scandal an offense to the world. When Christ spoke of giving his life for the world, the disciples responded, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? 
But the message of the New Testament is that you can know God in no other way than by faith in Christ, who humiliated himself, being born of a virgin, suffering in the world, dying for sinners upon the cross, but also who in his flesh was raised, ascended, intercedes, and is coming again. To know God, you must come by faith to the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It is through the flesh that he assumes that God is revealed to sinners, and this is a great scandal to the world that would have you believe and think that we autonomously can be saved, saved through human philosophy, saved through science. No, no, you can be saved only through this creator and redeemer. And that leads us also to this, the exclusivity of the gospel. Why don't you, Christian, join hands with the religions of the world? I received an invitation some months ago to join in with an ecumenical service in which there would have been Jews and Christians and uh, believers and unbelievers and all sorts of people in one service of thanksgiving. And I wrote them back and said this would be to compromise Jesus Christ and would be to compromise the Protestant Reformation. You see, because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved, because the incarnate Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Because apart from the incarnate Christ who bore the sins of sinners on the cross, there is no grace, no freedom, there is no redemption from sin, there is no reconciliation to God in view of this truth and reality. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And he says to the world, through the proclamation of his word, through the reading and preaching of the gospel, there is no other savior, there is no other redeemer. The gospel must be preached in its exclusivity. And then we also glean from this another implication that Christ Jesus, contrary to what the heretics were teaching in the Colossian church, he is altogether sufficient to save sinners. We need nothing else. We need no one else that we might be accepted by God. He is God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And this is why his obedience and blood can save from sin. His infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. So that Haldane certainly was right when in his commentary on Romans he said, it is impossible that sin can be more powerful to destroy us than the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ to save us. His grace is greater than our sin. And then to conclude in this way, Christ is preeminent. Look at who he is. Therefore, I should seek to exalt him in my life. If he is preeminent over all things, then he must be preeminent in my thought life, in my heart, in my conscience. Christ is head. He is sovereign. So what are the areas in your life in which you need to consciously seek to declare the preeminence of Christ? All things, remember verses 16, 17, 18, all things, he is preeminent in all things. The universe is a Christocentric universe. 
It is for him the end of creation. The ultimate end of creation is not even the salvation of his elect, though that is part of his plan and purpose. It is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the creator and the redeemer. So does that not demand a Christ-centered life if we live in a Christocentric universe? The heretics degraded Christ by their heresy. Oh, may we not degrade Christ by our lives. So let me address your consciences very closely. Does not the Lord of all things deserve that all things in your life be laid at his feet? Are you knowingly holding something back that you know belongs at the foot of the cross? Are you clinging to some idol within your soul? Are you caressing some sin rather than embracing your Savior? He is a gracious Lord and He will receive you. Believe and repent immediately. Do not wait, but hear the word of the Lord right now. Some lost person, there is no instrument for laying hold of Jesus Christ but faith. If a starving man has food before him and he does not eat, what good does it do him? If there were medicine in the, in the window that could help you and offer to you and you did not take it, what good would it do you? Faith is the alone instrument for receiving Jesus Christ. And child of God, he must grow upward in my esteem. And I must grow downward in my esteem. Christ's exaltation calls me to self-abasement and Christ's exaltation. It is said that Charles Simeon, the great English preacher of Cambridge in the late 18th, early 19th century, preached a sermon on Colossians 1.18. It was very old when he preached it. One hearer wrote that he would never forget hearing Simeon preach this as an old man. And the old man seemed to rise and dilate under the impression of his master's glory. Simeon saying that he might have the preeminence and he will have it, and he must have it, and he shall have it. The text is so high, I simply cannot reach it. But are we washed in Jesus' blood, God who became man, then walk in faith and faithfulness. Give your heart daily to him. Give Christ the preeminence that he deserves, for he will have the preeminence and he must have the preeminence, and he shall have the preeminence. How exalted is Christ! How infinitely exalted is the Christ of this passage. And this exalted, infinite Lord is the one who invites us to share in his table this morning who invites us to anticipate that great banquet that is yet to come. This infinitely exalted Lord invites a sinner like me to sit at his table and to share his food, to feast on Christ by faith. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just overwhelmed.
were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. Demands your heart, your life, your all. Amen and amen.